You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Sir Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Thomas Jefferson, and Andy Warhol may have had something in common. If you are clueless, you may have a similar problem. To see the forest from the trees, please join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. Dr. Bauman is an Associate Clinical Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, Adjunct Associate Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Boston University School of Medicine, and Clinical Professor of Pediatrics, University of California at Irvine. She is an internationally well-known expert on autism and directs several foundations committed to research in autism and autism spectrum disorders. Research interests include the study of microscopic brain structure in autism, Rett syndrome, and other disorders of neurological development. Hi, Dr. Bauman. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. One of the problems faced by a person with autism is picking up and interpreting the clues. What are the clues to diagnosis, and what should we be looking for, especially in the younger child? There was a lovely paper that was published in 1999 and then subsequently in a number of medical journals. Probably has not gotten out to the lay public, which is, although it's gotten out in a, a briefer form, which I'll mention in a minute. But anyway, it was, it was called the practice parameters. And it was laying out just those very issues for uh, primary care physicians. What, if you're a primary care physician, what do you need to look for? And it was uh, things such as if the child has no babbling by 12 months, uh, is not pointing in a communicative sense and has no words by 16 months of age, that child needs to be evaluated with the possibility that he or she has uh, autism. I think that you know, certainly we're going to pick up some children who probably don't have autism during that time, but it certainly is a very good simplified red flag uh, for primary care physicians to start looking. I think parents are very aware of this disorder right now due to the lot of, large amount of publicity that's out there about it. Uh, there is a wonderful group that has put together something called First Signs. This was put together by a parent named Nancy Wiseman, and it's a videotape and a little booklet. There have been summaries of those that have also been uh, given out to, to primary care physicians, but also there, there are little pamphlets that can be put out in uh, doctor's offices, just regular doctor's offices that people can pick up. But it's wonderful in the sense that it, it, you have this videotape and you can look at it and really see what some of the differences are between typically developing infants and toddlers versus uh, children who are more likely to have autism than not. Do you ever have patients bring in a videotape of their child for you to analyze? If I ask them to. Typically not at the first visit, uh, but oftentimes this this comes up actually when we have, as you probably know, some of the, there's about one-third of the the children on the autism spectrum who have a seizure disorder. And many of the children with autism have odd behaviors. And oftentimes these behaviors can be, somebody suggests that, that maybe the behaviors are seizure-related. And sometimes it's very hard for me as a clinician to know what the person or the therapist or whoever it is, a teacher, is talking about. So I will say to them, you know, can you set up a video camera in the school or at home or whatever and let me look at it. And many times it really is not seizure-related. Uh, and I think it's an important comment that you've made because we don't want to go down a wrong path for some of these kids and start medications when medications aren't warranted. On the other hand, if it is warranted, we need to know that too. So I think a, a good videotape is extremely useful. 
there's a, the wonderful study uh, also that was done, which has sort of started this whole thing about early identification, was done out of University of Washington in Seattle by uh, Dr. Jerry Dawson. And what they did, and this is now years old, but it really set the framework for all of our thinking about this, was what they did was that they got videotapes from parents on the children that they then knew were autistic. So they had a bunch of three, four, five-year-olds, and they said, you know, send us your first birthday videotapes. And, you know, we're now in the videotape world where everybody takes videos of their child all the time. And so they reviewed those videotapes and compared those first birthday tapes to those children who were typically developing children. And what came out of that was uh, that the autistic children did not point. They did not isolate their index finger and use that index finger to point gesture for communication purposes. The second thing that they noticed was that the children who became autism autistic, and again, this is at 12 months of age, did not have what's called joint attention. And what that means is that if you and I have our 12-month-old out in the park and we're walking along and we see a dog and we say, oh, look at the doggy, and we gesture with our hand and we say, look at the doggy, most typical kids will turn and look at the doggy. The autistic kids did not do that. They didn't share the same point of attention that the, the adult was gesturing towards. And those two, two uh, sort of red flags have held up pretty well um, for quite a while. Uh, and they, too, got into this uh, practice parameters story. But there's more and more now out there that have uh, added on to these ideas and really and put in simplified pamph- pamphlets with photographs and pictures that really highlight what parents really need to look for. And I, more and more parents have gotten very savvy about this. How would they get the videotape? Go online and look for first signs. I've never done it myself, but I'm absolutely sure that they have a website. At one point, they were they had some money and were giving them away for free. I think now there's some cost to them, but I don't know what it is. If you have just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. We are discussing the diagnosis and clues to suspect autism and autism spectrum disorders. The diagnosis in young children must be a very exciting new finding. How has this led to better treatment? I'm not sure that it's exciting. It's certainly not probably very exciting for the family. I think that what we're doing, quite honestly, now is validating what they've already suspected, and maybe that's a good thing. I think parents worry, and there was a period of time where pediatricians would say, oh, well, he's just a boy, don't worry about it, let's give him another six months and so forth. And I think pediatricians now are doing a very much better job of saying, you know what, you're right, Uh, we really need to check this out. And I think it's one of the reasons we're getting more of these kids uh, much earlier. What do you feel are the best screening tools for a pediatrician to use in the office? Most of them are are checklists for parents, which is wonderful. And I think if one simply puts a a bunch of these checklists in the the office, most of us uh, who, who have clinical practices are always behind, unfortunately. So while parents are sitting in the waiting room waiting for us, they can simply fill out a checklist, which is very helpful. There's one called the MCHAT. C-H-A-T, which is uh, sort of an expanded definition of the original one that was defined by Simon Baron-Cohen in England in 1996 and basically highlights things like pretend play, um, gesturing, joint attention, language, 
those kinds of things. And, and the parent simply says, yes, no, whatever. And then the, the one can simply take that over to the pediatrician who looks at it and says, oh, yes, there's something here that we need to, to pursue. So it's probably, you know, simply one, one or two page checklists can really um, begin to highlight concerns that a parent might have. In our own clinic, we have a sheet that's got certain questions on it and, and the you know, sort of the top question is something like, you know, what are, what are your concerns about your child? And it's, they have space to put in about one or two sentences. And that really just highlights for me right off the top what it is that the, the parent is concerned about. Uh, sometimes the parents aren't concerned. And then, you, you know, then the, the pediatrician has a little more of a challenge. Gunnar Stickler, a former professor of pediatrics and chairman of the department at the Mayo School of Medicine, I remember during my training said, if a parent comes in and says, the neighbors said that I think they're cross-eyed. That probably isn't true. But if the parent comes in and said, you know, my child is cross-eyed, you better take him seriously. And your comment about doctors saying, and again, uh, it's always been a pet peeve of mine when somebody says they're going to grow out of it. And I understand from some of the reading I did preparing for this talk that in a study of 1,300 families, that fewer than 10% were diagnosed at the initial examination. Has that been your experience? Basically, I think, again, it depends upon where you live and where you are. Here in the Northeast, at least in eastern Massachusetts now, I think it, I would doubt seriously that that number is that low. I think our pediatricians are very good at this. And I would say I can't remember the last time some parent came in and said, you know, he'll outgrow it or the pediatrician said or whatever. It occasionally happens, but it certainly is not at any level that I heard maybe as recently as five years ago. On the West Coast, yeah, not to malign California particularly, but uh, at least where I work in California, it's much more common to have people say, well, he's too young to make a diagnosis. I hear that a lot. It's just a speech problem. So that there seems to be a, more, a greater reluctance to give that diagnosis over there. So I think there are probably going to be regional differences depending upon where kids live and what the, the services are that are available. So maybe the 10% is, a, is an overall number, but I think it's probably higher in some areas. Once the diagnosis is suspected using the published criteria, are there any tests that you would recommend that should be done routinely or might confirm one's suspicion or suggest associated conditions? We don't have any objective tests. This is a clinical impression of someone who, and hopefully this is a clinical impression of somebody who's been in the business a while and really knows what the spectrum looks like uh, and really isn't relying solely on the DSM-4 or any of these more rigid, what I consider rigid criteria. I think it it really does take someone who, uh, you know, has seen a, a lots and lots of these kids who really kind of gets it. Certainly other people can suspect it, but hopefully they'll send it on to someone else with some expertise there. I was going to ask if you look for fragile X or metabolic disorders. Routinely what I do is get the kids into services. Uh, I do tell parents that I think it would be helpful if the child had chromosomal analysis and DNA analysis for fragile X, primarily, quite honestly, because I think it's a family question. It's not, you know, if he has fragile X, he's got fragile X, and we don't do genetic engineering yet, so I don't know that we're going to change that right now anyway. In any case, it's, it's certainly important that other family members know that it's fragile X or it's not or it's tuberous sclerosis or it's one of the other disorders that might be associated uh, with autism. So, yes, I think that should be done. But I don't always say you need to run right out and do this. I'll say the next time you have blood drawn or he has blood drawn, please uh, get 
this as an additional whatever. I don't think it's absolutely urgent unless the family comes in and says, you know, we're we're trying to decide whether we need to have we're going to have another child. In that case, yes, I would certainly want to do it up front uh, before they went on. And I think they need to know what their risks are. But we don't have anything like that. In the practice parameters, uh, they did recommend chromosomal analysis and DNA analysis as a routine, and I certainly understand why that's the case, and I, I would agree with it in general. Uh, they also re- recommend getting EEGs or brainwave tests on these kids largely because, as we mentioned earlier, one-third of the children on the spectrum tend to have uh, seizures, some type of seizure disorder. I'm a little leery about that, and I don't do it routinely, personally, in large part because EEG is not a perfect test, that if we went out and rounded up 100 people off the street, none of whom that we know of that had seizures, 15% of those people will have an abnormal EEG of some type. And there, similarly, you can have people who are having seizures in front of you who have a normal EEG. So one has to put the technology together with what somebody is telling you. I want to thank Dr. Margaret Bauman, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the autism spectrum disorders. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Good day and good health.